Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church and Pastor Josh LaGrange. This week, we return to the book of Romans, and we have a look at how God sees our sin, how we should see our sin, and seven points of application on how to identify and attack our sin. You can join us by turning to Romans chapter 6 as Pastor Josh LaGrange delivers his sermon titled, Do Not Let Sin Reign. So Romans chapter 6, we're going to read verses 12 through 14. And just going to go ahead and tell you that where we are in this, uh, this, is, this is a very pregnant passage here. So in, in this section of only these three-ish verses, and then you back up to verse 11 and count that one in here, there's quite a few messages in, in just this one place. So the intention is uh, even into next Sunday, we'll continue studying in this section right here. So let's read the word of the living God. And then I'll pray and ask for God's help. So Romans 6, beginning in verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Let's pray and ask for God's help. Merciful Father, God, we just sincerely ask that you will send us your spirit. Father, I pray that you give us eyes to see, ears to hear. Lord, that we would be able to behold um, your truths, and in beholding your truths, we would come to know you. Father, the more that you show us of the, the work of the gospel, the more we come to understand you. The more you show us about ourselves, who we truly are, what your will is for us, what you desire of us, God, the more we come to understand you. So Father, we pray that you'll show your glory. Please give us understanding to see, comprehend, worship. And Lord, I sincerely pray that from these truths right here, our lives will come to be transformed. God, that we will make significant and serious progress, oh God, because of having seen these truths. So everything that needs to happen for that, we ask that you do it. Father, I, I pray that you remove distractions, Lord, that you enable us to be able to lean in and sincerely see and hear and uh, help me, oh God, to preach in a way that's helpful and not uh, unhelpful, oh God. So please bless. We love you, and we ask all these things through the name of Christ. Amen. Um, C.S. Lewis uh, wrote a little book uh, called The Great Divorce. And in that book, one of, the, um, one of the big truths that he highlights is the weight of what we are becoming e eternally the trajectory that the believer and the unbeliever is on, uh, where is this bringing us uh, even into eternity? So for those who are in Christ, God is forming us into something. There is a, a greater version of even in this lifetime that he wants us to become, but then even into eternity, what is the end? What is he making us into? And then also for the unbeliever, he highlights the terrors of that downward trajectory of where they are heading. And, and to do that, he, he uses a number of uh, very vivid illustrations. Uh, one of the ones that sticks out to me is uh, there's a, a scene in the book that you're reading that you encounter a, a man 
who struggles with the sin of uh, pitying himself, that, that real victimhood, that, that dramatic all the time feeling sorry for himself, and you encounter him eventually taken over and he becomes like a dramatic stage actor instead of a real man. He, he be, this sin takes over his life because he is not being purified by God. But then there's a, another scene, there's another occasion where we meet a ghost. And the ghost has a, a little red lizard sitting on his shoulder. And the lizard never stops whispering lustful words into his ears. The, the lizard will, will whisper, he's got his little flickering tongue, whispering things into his ear, these nasty things. And occasionally the man turns to the lizard and he tells it to shut up. And it pauses for a moment, but then it just begins in again. And, and the ghost meets an angel, a flaming fire of an angel. And the angel begins a dialogue with a man. I want to read to you a little part of it. The angel says to the ghost, would you like me to make him quiet? Of course I would, said the ghost. Then I will kill him, said the angel, taking a step forward. Oh, look at that. You're burning me. Keep away, said the ghost, retreating. Don't you want him killed? You didn't say anything about killing him at first. I hardly meant to bother you with anything so drastic as that. It's the only way, said the angel, whose burning hands were now very close to the lizard. Shall I kill it? Well, that's a further question. I'm, I'm quite open to consider it, but that's a, a new point, isn't it? I mean, for the moment, I was only thinking about silencing up here because, well, it's so embarrassing. May I kill it? Well, there's time to discuss that later. There's no time. May I kill it? Hey, please, I never meant to be such a nuisance. Please, really, don't bother. Look, it's gone to sleep now of its own accord. I'm, I'm sure it'll be all right now. Thanks ever so much. May I kill it? Honestly, I don't think that's the there's the slightest necessity for that. I'm sure I'll be able to keep it in order. Now, on and on, this dialogue goes where the ghost is afraid for this part of him to die. This part of his flesh and the angel just keeps pushing the issue and insisting. But there does come a moment when finally the lizard saw that he might be killed and he began to appeal to the man. He's whispering in his ear and the lizard said, be careful, he can do what he says. He can kill me. One fatal word from you and he will. And then you'll be without me forever and ever. It's not natural. How could you live? You'd only be a sort of ghost. Not a real man as you are now. He doesn't understand. He's only a, a cold, bloodless, abstract thing. It may be natural for him, but it isn't for us. Yes, yes, I know there are real, no real pleasures now, only dreams. But aren't they better than nothing? And I'll be so good. I, I admit I've sometimes gone too far in the past, but I promise I won't do it again. I'll give you nothing but really nice dreams. All sweet and fresh and almost innocent. The angel asked again, have I your permission? I know it will kill me, the ghost said. The angel said, it won't, but supposing it did. You're right, the ghost said. It would be better even to die than to have to keep living with this thing. The angel then reaches forward, grabs the lizard by the neck. It's flailing and biting and trying to stay alive. The angel snaps its neck and flings it on the ground. All the while, the ghost is in pain as this is happening. But once the lusting lizard was dead, Lewis then describes what began to happen to the ghost. 
He began to form arms and a shoulder. Body parts began to develop. The ghost transformed into a living, breathing, dignified body. The man became his realist self when his sin was dead. The death of his sin actually meant becoming more human, more alive, more of who he was created to be and coming into great joy. I think that can be a helpful illustration um, for really all that we've been seeing in in Romans chapter 6. In this passage, we're being told that the true Christian, and the first five chapters described who that is, by the way. The true Christian is being transformed by God. God is at work, and we are to be laboring towards what God is accomplishing, becoming what God made us and what God saved us to be. The process of doing this, this process of the Christian being purified, it is a grueling, painful, frustrating, slow, and aggravating process of putting things to death, putting parts of our flesh, parts of who we've thought ourselves to be all of our lives, putting them to death. But God tells us that in doing so, we are becoming the fullest version of ourselves. God purifying us results in our greatest joy and him forming us into the sons and daughters of God that he designed us to be. But the process is a process where things are dying and it oftentimes feels like they're dying. Things got to die. And oftentimes it's things that we're not so sure we want dead, if we're just being really honest. And it's not until God shows us sin's devastating nature. It's not until we come to, to see, to come to understand who it is God formed us to be, what it is that sin is doing to us, that we are then willing to put it to death. And chapter six has been showing us all of these things. Chapter six has been showing us who God designed us to be, what has happened by turning to Christ, our union with him, and why we are to be putting these things to death. And so if you have not been with us thus far in our study, if you're just joining us, we're so glad that you are. We hope that this is very helpful, but let me clarify a couple of things here. Romans 6 comes kind of right dead in the middle of a long explanation that takes 11 chapters to unfold. The first 11 chapters of this book is a, is a long explanation. It's a logical argument where God is explaining to us the gospel, what he calls the gospel, the good news of salvation in Christ. And so we at our church, we've been working through verse by verse, passage by passage. And what we saw the first five chapters really explain in great depth is really the heart of it all. You can sum up the entire Bible and you can sum up the entirety of what God has been doing in history by what we are shown in this explanation of what he is doing. We have seen God show us our absolute greatest need. Because you have no need that's greater than eternal life. Now, it's common, common belief of culture today um, for everybody to just kind of think that they have eternal life automatically uh, just because they're breathing. 
or just because they go to church, or just because they pray, or think themselves to be a good person. But what the Bible shows over and over, and if you want to read this for yourself, read the first five chapters of this book, we just see God show over and over again, eternal life comes only one way. It comes by being right with God, the one who determines your eternity. And God all through the Bible explains to us that our sins against him, our breaking of his law, has put us in a place that we're not right with him. We deserve punishment from God. There really is a hell. And for all who reject, reject the gift that God offers, reject to come to God in the way that he says, you really will go there. And this is why God has spoken to humanity. This is why God has given his word. This is why God has uh, commissioned his church to go out into the world to get the message of this good news out there to draw souls to come to him. We deserve punishment, but God has made a way to deliver us out of that. And if when I say the, that phrase there, if I say that phrase there that you deserve punishment, if that offends you, you're not sure you believe that, let me tell you to read one place in the Bible that will absolutely convince you. In Romans, look at chapter 3 and verse 10 through the end of the chapter there. It's just so crystal clear. You and I deserve the wrath of God. But God in his mercy made a way for us to be forgiven. God made a way for us to be brought to a place of being right with him and therefore have eternal life. And that way is Christ. Christ has died to make a, a way available for you to receive a gift. But if you refuse it, you do not have it. He died to take the place of all who will come to him. And so the way that you get this forgiveness of sins, get this eternal life, the Bible repeats it over and over again, is repent and believe. Repent and believe, which is to come to God trusting in Christ with a heart attitude that is submitting to him. A heart attitude that, that doesn't trust in some goodness you think that you have, but it's seeing I need Christ and to come to submission to him. It's to come with a repentant heart, to turn away from a rebellious spirit, to, to bow the knee to him. It is to come to God with the attitude that I am choosing to become an obeyer of God. And God explains that it is at the very moment that your heart turns. At that very instant, just like the thief on the cross. At that very instant of turning that you become right with God, that you become justified. That's the word that the Bible often uses. You become justified. That is not guilty. And so if you've not yet known that, if this is the first time you've heard it or you've not yet turned to Christ like this, this is what you absolutely need to know. You are not okay right now and you need Christ. So the first five chapters explained all of that to us. And for those who have turned to Christ like this, um, if you look at chapter five, verse one, we're told we have confidence that we have peace with God. Chapter six then comes in with kind of the what now question. All right, if I'm confident that I have peace with God, well then what does God expect of me now? What am I to be doing now? Can I just do what I please, live how I please? No, scripture comes in here and says, absolutely not. God has called you to a way of living to grow in holiness. God has called us that for the rest of the time we have on this earth, 
that he, he is at work in us to purify us, grow us in Christ, put our sin to death, make practical progress in obedience. And the biblical word for that is sanctification. And so Romans 6 and even into the next chapter, chapter 7, is all about this word right here, sanctification, us growing in obedience to Christ. So, so far in our study, as we've looked at chapter 6, we've seen reasons why it is a necessity that we grow in Christ and obey God. But the section that we find ourselves in here in verses 12 to 14, it's the first section of this passage that there's the real application that's given where it's almost like the Holy Spirit inspires Paul to kind of take a step back and to just sort of say to all the readers and say, okay, now, now go do this. Now go apply this. I've explained to you some of these technical things. Now let's go do this. Let's go obey him. And he gives this instruction here. Do not let sin reign. That's really the one phrase I want to kind of hang on to this morning. Do not let sin reign on the throne of your life. Occasionally it's helpful to just take one truth and to just really try to think it through as fully as we possibly can. So the, the, the one truth, this, this passage has more than that. Like we got to come back and look at what does it mean to obey sin's lust. We're going to come back and think about that. But specifically this morning, this one sentence here, do not let sin reign. So in one sense, that's a simple instruction. It's a command. Now go do this. Okay, so we could just kind of close up right here and say, let's go home, not let sin reign in us. But we know the reality that as fallen humans, it is not that easy. It takes an incredible amount of effort even to, even to eliminate one sin from our lives. If you have ever like set out to do this and been like, okay, I see a pattern in my life. I want this gone, you know, anger, lust, whatever, I want this gone. And you set out to do it. It's actually, it's amazing how much effort, how long it takes sometimes to get this one thing out of our lives. So even though the Bible gives a simple sentence here of a command, it's not that simple in the doing. And we need help thinking through it. We need the word to show us more. So I want to think through just this one phrase here. Do not let sin Rain. I want to bring up just kind of a couple parts, some of the whys, some of the hows to help, number one, stir our hearts to want this, to see why we need to die to sin and its devastating effects. And then also to think through some of the areas of the hows and such. So this is where we're going. So notice the language of verse 12 again. Notice the illustration that is used. Do not let sin reign. That's the language of kingship. That's the language of lordship. See, here's the reality. We all know that we are sinners by nature. We've seen scripture show us that. And so long as we are in this body and in this age, we're not going to be able to entirely stop sinning. All right, no matter how much we grow. John the Baptist up to the end still battled with the flesh. And so sometimes folks will come to this conclusion well, therefore, just don't worry about it. You know, we all make mistakes. So, you know, just under, God loves you. Just understand. 
It's all okay. Don't get bent out of shape about it. Do the best you can. And usually when people use that phrase, do the best you can, what they really mean is do a bare minimum effort, but tell yourself that you do the best you can. Just don't worry about it, that kind of thing. But listen, that's not the conclusion that the Bible comes to. That's not the conclusion that scripture leads us to. While we cannot stop sinning, while we cannot stop altogether, there's a difference between sin being an unwanted presence and sin being king. And what scripture calls us to here is do not let sin reign. Do not let it have authority. Do not let it have influence. Do not let it sit on the throne. The command here is dethrone this, enthrone Christ. The truly justified Christian is the one who has said in his heart and with his lips, Jesus is Lord. And when we use that, that, that phrase there, Jesus is Lord, we do not only mean that Jesus is divine. We mean that, but that's not all that we mean. When we say Jesus is Lord, it's not all that we mean that Jesus is God with the Father from all of eternity. That is true, but that is not all that that statement is declaring. The word Lord is a word that is used for sovereignty, rule, reign, authority. You give allegiance. You give submission to the one who is your Lord. The Christian is the one who has truly made Christ Lord in our hearts. He reigns and so sin cannot. The Christian is the one who, well, you know, look, look at the language uh, of the text there. It's interesting that the word Lord is not used in this little section here. It's used later. It's not used in this section here, but the explanation of it is. Look at verse 13. Do not allow the members of your body. So that's your body parts. That's your arms. That's your legs. That's your, that's your mind. That's your lips. Do not let your members give allegiance to unrighteousness. But rather what? Present yourselves to God. Give, give your body, your arms, your legs, your hands, your lips, your mind, your heart, your actions. Give them over to God. Make your lips bow to God. Make your hands and your eyes bow to him. Give allegiance to him. If you look over at verse 17, which is a, another helpful um, sentence there, there's a phrase that I find so extremely helpful. This is part of the definition of a true Christian. A true Christian is one who has become, look at the language, obedient from the heart. Obedient from the heart. See, if where you're sitting right now, even in your living room at home, if that's where you are, even before you leave and go begin to do actions, you can right now turn to Christ in a way that you become obedient from the heart. The thief on the cross did not have the opportunity to climb down and go do good deeds in his life, but he became obedient from the heart in that instance. If you think of it, this is another way of explaining what repentance is. Another way of explaining what repentance is, is to become obedient from the heart, to turn from rebellion, to give allegiance to Christ. The true Christian wants to obey him. We will still fall. We will still fall to sin. Sin will be an unwelcome stowaway, but it is not to be a dinner guest at our table. And ever since the first century, 
There have always been these groups, okay? It was happening in the, if you read the book of 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, one of the issues Paul's addressing there, ever since the days of the early church continuing through, there has always been a group under the name of Christianity who's always telling everybody, relax, God doesn't worry about it. God doesn't expect anything out of you. But what we have scripture showing is it's constantly combating that. It's constantly combating the idea that God doesn't expect obedience so as to preach these truths right here. So let's make this very clear as we go through this. Obedience to God is a really big deal. God expects you to obey him. Willful disobedience is letting sin reign. God expects the Christian to live a life of ongoing submission to him. God expects the Christian to live like Jesus is Lord. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? If Jesus truly is Lord, then that means we will give allegiance to him as our sovereign and we will want to obey him. And so we are called to this. We are called God expects us to fight, to bleed, to struggle, to war. The language of war is used in scripture here. And and let's just make it very clear. Your fighting sin is not what saves you. But us being made right with God and the heart change and the miracle that God works in the new birth at the moment of turning to Christ produces a change that then leads to the fighting of sin. It's an identifier of the people of God. We are to be making progress. So how do we do this? So how do we do this? If you jump ahead just a little bit to uh, Romans chapter 8, if you look at verses 12 and 13 there, uh, there's a little section and it talks about we are under obligation. Okay, we are under obligation. We do have an obligation on us not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die, the scripture says. That's an identifier of those who are not truly in Christ, living according to the flesh. It's the mark of the life. But then notice what it says in the rest there. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Even though chapter 6 doesn't use that exact language, that is what is being preached here. Put your sin to death. Destroy it. Kill it. Drive it out. Starve it. And think about the mindset here. See, there really does have to come a a major shift in thinking. Not only in turning to Christ for the first time, a shift in thinking where, you know, I do whatever I want to. Now, I guess I got to give some obedience there. But even as we just continue to grow as Christians, we all have certain parts of our flesh, particular sins to us, that we really don't feel like we're at war with. We kind of keep them around. We feel very comfortable with them. Kind of like the red lizard saying to the ghost, you really don't want to live without me, do you? We all have certain temptations that for us and for all of us, it's different stuff, but that we don't really feel like I need to be at war with this. But we got to have this mindset shift. In the book of James, scripture says, friendship with the world 
is hostility towards God. It is not possible to be at peace with the world and at peace with God. Jesus said, you cannot serve two masters. You'll love the one and hate the other, vice versa. And then he follows it up. You cannot love God and money. It is not possible to be at peace with sin and yet be in fellowship with God. We cannot, we must not be at peace with our sin. We cannot let it sit at the dinner table as an invited guest in our home. He calls us to war. And war is how we have to think about it. Sin is rebellion against the rule of God. The essence of sin at its root is the attempt to un-God God, the attempt to dethrone Christ. We cannot be at peace with it. We have to think of sin in terms of war. It is your enemy. And, and let me just say this very clearly. It is your enemy even when we don't feel like it's our enemy. Even if you are not following Christ and you are celebrating this life and trying to drink it up, toke it up all that you can, get your thrills here, and you think it's your friend, it is not your friend. It is leading to your devastating destruction. Sin always has a cost. It is your enemy. It is depleting, corrupting, perverting, robbing, robbing of joy. It is inhibiting you from becoming, and I'm talking even as believers, even us who are in Christ and, and we're confident that we've been saved from the wrath of God to come, whatever sin we let remain in our lives now, it is keeping us from becoming the full, vibrant, filled with joy sons and daughters of God that he created and saved us to be. It is keeping us from becoming what God wants us to be, the fullest, most joyful version of ourselves. But part of the way that the Bible influences us and part of the way that the Bible is helping to change this mindset so that we see and feel sin's ugliness, its ugliness, is it is showing us the realities of this thing. So we all have sin that when we think of it in our minds, it's ugly, it's gross, it's disgusting. We say things like, how could anybody do that? But at the same time, we all have some sins that don't feel ugly. In fact, they might feel beautiful, but just them feeling beautiful does not mean that they are. We all have some sins that what needs to happen is that we got to believe the word of God, even when to our carnal eyes, it doesn't seem so at the time. And we have to see scripture show that it is ugly. And so part of what scripture is doing, part of what chapter six is doing is it is showing us realities. Um, if you've been with us through our study of Romans 6, then you know we've spent some time thinking about indicatives and imperatives. So an imperative is a command. An indicative is just when God explains reality. He says, here's how the world is, okay? Two plus two equals four. Oranges are orange. Humans with XY chromosomes are male, okay? Like this, these are indicatives. These are realities here. Well, we keep being shown these kinds of things. And here is another one. Sin is ugly. Sin is destructive, it is repulsive. Even when we don't feel like it's repulsive, it really is repulsive. The angels of heaven, the host of heaven, the souls gathered around the throne, they see that it is repulsive. And you and I will too. 
The day will come when we look back on the sins that we now think are okay or even seem not that ugly, and we will think, what was I thinking? How did I not see it? It really is repulsive. It is your enemy. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, Scripture says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers, because that's what the Christian is in this world. This is not your home. We are citizens of heaven. I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against your soul. What do our lust do? They are at war with you. Even when we don't feel like it, they are at war with us. God only calls us to kill things that are killing us. In one sense, killing our sin is self-defense because it is seeking to destroy you. John Owen said, you be killing sin or it be killing you. It is robbing, it is corrupting, it is depleting, it is having effects. Now, I had hoped uh, in our time of study um, to just maybe take one sin and just try to really think through the ways that it affects us. I was, I, was, I was hoping to take maybe just like a really obvious one, like say take the sin of pornography and just think through all of the ways that it devastates the way a man thinks, the way a man sees the world, the way a man thinks of women, the way it perverts his, his understanding of marriage, what, what it is doing to his selfishness and self-absorption and, and all these kinds of things. But it was just going to be more time than what we had today. So we may do that sometime in the future. But do realize this. Pornography may be a more obvious version of that, but every single sin, even the ones that we think of as light, Every single sin is having some way that it is changing us to become something, becoming a monster, becoming someone who is absorbed by this way of thinking. Each sin can seem manageable for a time. You give into it long enough, it becomes a monster. Laziness can become a monster that is in, in, in hard to overcome, coveting, greed, that can become monsters. All sin in some way is doing this. And even if we sit there right now going, uh, but not me, <laughs> because I'm self-aware. I, I, I know how to keep it from happening to me. You know, we, we talk about sometimes the effects that what we take in with um, garbage movies, garbage TV shows, those, those kinds of things. And sometimes folks will respond, uh, but, but not me, you know because I know how to keep it away. That's buying Satan's lie. It all has effect on us in some way. It is all repulsive. It is all destructive. And it is your enemy. There is a kind of man, a kind of woman that God made you and saved you to become. Uh, imagine for a second, a uh, physically speaking, a great mountain of a man. You know that barrel-chested, power-lifting, bearded mountain of a man that every man really wants to be. Imagine him right there. Now let's think back to whenever he was 12 years old. He's 12 years old and he sees that he could lift and work out, but he also is tempted to just sit around and be a, a TV-watching, phone-obsessed, lazy kid. And let's say he faced that temptation at a certain period in his life. If he went this route 
of just giving into the laziness and he had grown up, he never would have known what he could have become. He may have grown up and thought to himself, I turned out pretty well. I think I turned out all right. But he wouldn't realize what he could have become. Well, now apply that spiritually. See, one of the things that we have a tendency to do is to kind of look around at the world and kind of be like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm not as bad as a lot of other people. That is not God's standard. There is a mountain of a man that God wants you to be. There is a dignified daughter of God that he wants you to be, that he wants us to grow up into. And if we don't go down that road, we won't realize what we could have become. We might say those phrases, I think I turned out okay. But the reality is God did not call us to mediocrity. When he tells us, go be holy, the commander is not go be mediocre. Holiness is moral excellence. It's not moral okayness. God has not called us simply to try to rise to the standard, even the standard that usually exists in the church. There is a standard that scripture shows that he wants us to grow to. And all of the sin that we allow to remain in our lives, those patterns, those thoughts that we don't take captive, those ways that we hide certain things and just, well, I'll make sure it doesn't get too out of control. All of them are keeping us from becoming what God designed us and saved us to be. Do not let sin reign. Put your sin to death. Verse 13, do not present your members, your body to unrighteousness. Present yourselves to God. Now, as a second part here, what, what is involved in this? How do we actually do this? I, I want to offer this, of course, is not exhaustive, but just in trying to think through all of these things, I want to offer several areas to consider when it comes to removing the reign of sin in our lives. Let me see here. I've got, uh, I've got seven quick areas that I want to rattle off to you. So if you're taking notes, we'll go through these. So here's the first as we're just trying to think through areas. Number one, willful, deliberate sins must be immediately eliminated. Willful sins. We got to get them gone quick. Some sins we will battle till we die. We're not to use that as an excuse. Okay. But ways of thinking, prideful ways of thinking, selfishness. We're, we're, we're going to battle those things till we die. We need to make progress. We need to actually war, but we're going to battle those things till we die. But let's be honest. There are sins that can be gone by tonight. Willful, deliberate situations, willful, deliberate sins. We are to get rid of them because they are high handed, highly rebellious sins. Number two, devastating sins must be quickly removed. Sins that are devastating. Now, what, what do I mean by devastating sins? Well, I, I would mean things like sins of a scandalous kind of nature uh, that may be public in some kind of way, uh, a, a way that is ruining your testimony of, you know, the, the Christian is one who says, Jesus changes my life. We need to make sure that our living is consistent with that. But there are also ways that even if a sin is secret, it can be devastating. So understand this. All sin is worse than we realize it is. All sin is repulsive to God. 
I don't believe that all sin is equally repulsive to God. That, I, that idea is out there. It, it is popular. I've, I've heard it. I can't see anywhere in the Bible where that view is, is ever taught. I, I think I see something different. I think I see that God showing that there are sins that he finds more heinous than others. That's why in the law that he gave, some sins deserve the uh, capital punishment and others did not. There's no such thing as a light sin. It's all more devastating than we think. But it is a reality that there are some that are weightier than others. And so we need to identify those. Using the word of God, we need to identify what those are and seek to quickly make those a priority for removing those. And we've got to use the Bible as the judge of that and not opinion. You know what I'm saying? So every, every it seems like every 15 minutes right now, but in bigger ways, every decade or so, culture finds some sin that it latches onto and thinks, like, this is the sin of all sins, these kinds of things. Like, 25-ish years ago, everybody was thinking that sexual sin, okay, that's the, that's the worst kind of sin that actually exists. You know, and then today, not very many people think those kinds of ways. But what does the Bible say about those things? The Bible shows that actually dishonoring your father and your mother is actually a sin of a pretty significant weight. Very few people think in those kinds of ways. We've got to use the word of God to see those kinds of things. So we've got to identify the devastating and weightiest sins of our life and begin attacking them soon. Number three, our sinful patterns must be warred against. Our sinful patterns. The husband who speaks unlovingly to his wife one time. He has sinned. It's bad. He needs to confess and repent before God. He needs to apologize to his wife. But we also know his marriage is probably not going to crumble from it happening one time. But listen very carefully. If that becomes a pattern in his life, if the, if the dripping of poisonous words becomes an ongoing thing, it will have devastating effects in his walk with God and in his marriage. So listen, we all have patterns. We all have ways that sin has an ongoing presence in our life. We must war against them. Number four, we must take every thought captive. Isn't, isn't it crazy, right? How big is the lordship of Christ? How big is his sovereignty? Even our thoughts are to be taken captive to the authority of Christ. Number five, we must search the scriptures for commands that we are omitting commands that God has told us to go do certain things and we're failing to follow through on them. Fathers, bring up your children in the nurture and instruction of the Lord. Is it happening? Okay. Well, if not, we must implement strategies to make them happen. And one of the things that we can, that we can do is in times of worship, Times where the spirit of God stirs you to kind of have that gumption of, I want to do this, make decisions right now about what you will do. If that's take out your phone right now, punch it in your calendar that every night at 630, it pops up and reminds you to do this, whatever it's got to be. If you say to your wife, babe, remind me tonight at seven o'clock, whatever it is to make this happen in moments of worship, we've got to make decisions to implement these things. Number six. The lusts themselves must be combated. The root of our sins is the desire. The Bible calls an excessive desire 
or a corrupted desire, a lust. So, you know, the Bible will use the word lust for more than just sexual desires, any desire. And, and by the way, God has given us many good and legitimate desires. Uh, the desire to eat is survival, okay? It's also for enjoyment, okay? But the idea that all desires would be evil, that is, that is unbiblical. God has given legitimate desires and God has given good desires because he's a really great God who enjoys giving kindness to his people. And we're going to do a lot more talking about this in, in some of the days to come as we look at this. But one of the, one of the ways we see scripture address is that we are to go after the flesh, even all the way down to its very root, all the way down to the root of the desire where has the desire gone awry? And we are to begin putting it in place. Now, how we do that, there's a lot to that. Uh, that'll be a, a bigger one that we come back to, Lord willing, next Sunday. How do we not obey its lust? But we got to attack it all the way to the root, all the way to the desires themselves. And then number seven, we are not merely to stop the negative, but we are to obey God in the positive. True obedience is not simply the absence of a sinful action. It is living out the beautiful virtue. Let me give an example. Ephesians says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather work so that he may be able to give. So, so if you think about that, the calling of God, so there is a wicked action happening, the stealing. The calling of scripture is not just simply to stop the bad. See, part of the whole point in all this, God created us to live as sons and daughters of God who imitate the character of Christ. We were given a high standard of virtue, of holiness. Even when we fail to reach the heights of that, that sin, definition of sin, falling short. We're falling short of the heights of the beauty of the virtue. The stealing is actually running in the opposite direction. So we have to know that when it comes to all of these, when it comes to all of these, there's not only the command of God to stop the negative, but to obey in the positive. So do not murder. We are to obey in the positive. We are to be those who show love and peace and kindness and compassion and pity and grace to others over and over again. We are to imitate the glory of Christ. Now, bringing this to an end here, let me just kind of give one final word here. Here is a great danger in this. One of the great danger in all of this is we're doing a lot of talking about sin in general without getting into a lot of the specifics so far. We intend to come to some of that, but there's the danger that as we just talk about sin in general, we won't make the connection in our minds to my sin in particular. There's always the danger that we'll, you know, amen the, yeah, we hate sin. Or we might even be thinking about, boy, my neighbor, he really needs to hear this message and be thinking about somebody else's sin. But we've got to work hard that we make the connection in my mind. I need to identify these places in my mind that I've got to shift my thinking. I have got to start going to war in a more pronounced way in this. And so scripture teaches us, scripture teaches us to pray and ask God to search us and show us. So the final word of application that I want to give you is, is this. Do the work on your own. 
do the work on your own of meditation, um, time of personal worship, time where you think through what are these areas that I need to go to war against. I'm hoping that as I've been preaching, the Holy Spirit has come and brought some of those to your mind, that maybe some of those that are keep popping up, don't, don't tell it to shut up, okay? Listen to some of what, 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 what you're hearing uh, your mind say and go after this and let's pray and ask God to show us, um, show us our sins so that we can uh, battle against it. So let's pray now, we'll close and I'll pray that for us. So please bow with me. Our Father in heaven, we, we very seriously want to say that we, we want to glorify you. So please give us help in this particular way, oh God. Father, we pray that you will help us to see and identify those places where we're dishonoring you. Please, God, show us those sins that are hidden to us, those places that we're blind to. Father, we, we know it's, it's a scary prayer to pray. Um, because we know you have a, a, a very dramatic way sometimes of showing us our sin. But God, we just humbly ask that you will. We pray you'll be gentle, but we pray, God, show us our sin. Show us where we are dishonoring you. And I pray, God, bring us to repentance. Bring us to see the ugliness of it and bring us to desire to glorify you. We love you, Lord, and we ask all these things in Christ. Amen. All right. Uh, so as we're finishing up here, just one quick word of, of announcement. Um, you know, we're tracking everything that's happening day by day here. Um, but for this next little season, we're not going to be joining together as a church family. So that includes this coming Wednesday night. Um, we'll not be meeting together in the future. We hope to put out uh, some of those videos and whatnot of some ways for you and your homes. But we're going to be doing some real encouraging of more family worship. Um, please uh, gather um, uh, with, with your household and pray together Wednesday night. Uh, look to the word. Um, make that a regular thing. We're going to be trying to put out some helps and those kinds of things. But that also includes this next Sunday. So next Sunday, we're going to uh, basically do exactly what we've done this morning, a, a, a live stream again. And so we'll make an announcement then at that time about what will come in the future. Uh, we're tracking what's happening. A lot of it will, will depend on what happens as this comes to our population here. Um, if what happens here is what happened in South Korea, uh, where their population handled it very well and it did not become devastating, then we will be able to meet back pretty soon. But if what happens like what has happened in Italy, uh, a much more devastating effect, then there will be a longer season. Believe me, we are ready to get back uh, to joining together. Uh, everything about this is inadequate in the grand scheme of things. We're glad we can be fed, but we're ready to gather together again. So believe me, we'll be joining just as soon as we believe we safely can. God bless you guys. We'll see you later. Thanks for listening. And we hope you enjoyed Pastor Josh LaGrange's sermon titled, Do Not Let Sin Reign. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter at TrueVineIND or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.